Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the morning of the 27th of March, 1922, and an armed desperado is being hunted through thick primeval forest that's known as Glen Nayuk. This sylvan slice of Gippsland has in the past decade become a Victorian tourist attraction. It's easy to see why. Glen Nayuk is out of this world. Flanked by soaring walls of two ranges, it's a place you'd expect to see a dinosaur. All around, huge ferns stand taller than most men, their thick trunks embroidered with delicate moss, enormous fronds umbrellaing every which way. As you walk between them on paths that crisscross this otherwise impenetrable forest, you can hear the roar of the underground river. Here and there, water surges up between rocks before being sucked back into the world below. The sky above is crowded with eucalypts, some towering two or even three hundred feet. These trees likely saplings when Captain Cook sailed up the east coast of Australia. This is a botanist's paradise. Beech, myrtle, blackwood, wattle, sassafras and mountain ash. So many types of trees. But today's visitors, a heavily armed posse of police and vigilantes, are seeking a singular species of maple. Henry Maple, bushranger of Glen Nayuk, more than 40 years after Ned Kelly made his last stand at Glen Rowan. Henry's fair-haired, heavy-featured, and his big frame is wrapped in multiple shirts, corduroy trousers, leggings, and military boots. The Winchester 22 caliber rifle he carries completes the picture. He looks every inch the outlaw. Like Ned Kelly, Henry now has the whole world against him, a world that intends to shoot him on sight. Not without good reason, because in his brief time as a bushranger, he shot two men. One was a constable, and the other a prominent local trying to bring him in. That's the sort of crime they hang people for. Right there in Melbourne jail, from the very same beam where Ned got his neck stretched. Hang Henry there, or shoot Henry here. Either way, he's dead. But only if they can find him. 
and to find him, they need to see him, and that's where Glen Nayuk is his friend. Everywhere you look, it's a maze of greenery, but Henry knows this place like the back of his hand. Even so, he's not in Glen Nayuk to hunker down or to hide. He's cold, soaked, hungry and exhausted. So Henry's moving through and he's now within Kui of the place where he'll have sympathy and support. Shelter, warmth, food and a change of clothes are all nearby. Bushranger Henry Butler, aged just 15 years, is trying to get home to his father. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, Young Ned Kelly, the boy bushranger of 1922. This week a century ago was a big one for crime and punishment in Melbourne, and the afternoon paper The Herald was continuing to cash in big time. Keith Murdoch, who'd been hands-on editor-in-chief for just six months, was making his name and starting an empire on the back of sensational stories. On New Year's Eve 1921, 12-year-old Alma Turchke had been found raped and strangled in the city's gun alley. Keith Murdoch's media mentor, Lord Northcliffe, had given him a piece of advice about increasing circulation of newspapers, and it went like this, find a good murder story. So as soon as Alma's body was found, the Herald went on a crusade criticising the cops and even offered its own reward for the capture of the killer. In this high-pressure atmosphere, police nabbed an innocent wine bar owner named Colin Campbell Ross. Murdoch used the arrest to congratulate himself and his operation. Here's the Herald on the 13th of January 1922, describing its own efforts to get extraordinary issues out quick and into the hands of the people. Quote, Supplies of the papers were distributed throughout the city and suburbs by means of train, tram and motor services, the distribution extending as far as Geelong, Ferntree Gully and Alinda and to Ballarat. The papers in every place were eagerly purchased and newsboys were rushed. Today, the public interest continued unabated, so much so that it was decided to issue a special edition at midday containing a full report of the proceedings in the city court and interesting sketches and photographs. Photographs of the accused that might have been prejudicial. The Herald's minute-by-minute coverage didn't help Colin Ross get a fair trial. But Murdoch got what he wanted. Circulation had surged in the early months of the year, going from 128,000 to a peak of 235,000. Colin Ross was found guilty, sentenced to hang, and was now making his appeal to the High Court. This last-ditch effort to save his life was front-page news in the Herald on the 23rd of March, 1922. But it ran below the day's even bigger crime story. Fugitive gangster Squizzy Taylor had sent another police-baiting letter to Keith Murdoch. Of course, the Herald published it in full and even reproduced a handwritten excerpt. Squizzy's letter began, Dear Sir, I cannot understand what all this fuss is about. Last night in the Herald, I noticed my photo, also one of a young lady, and in tonight's Herald, I see where it was stated that I was seen in St Kilda. It's a lot of rot. Squizzy went on to say he would, as he'd already promised, turn himself into the police just as soon as he got his business affairs in order. Quote, As soon as I have, I will pop up to the CID, knowing that I will be quite welcome, because I know that I can't dodge about much longer. Here, Squizzy made Melbourne and all of Australia laugh with a little verse about the city's two most famous detectives. Quote, For the old saying goes, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, 
If Brophy don't get you, well, pig it must. Squizzy signed off respectfully, Mr. L. Taylor, 31, not 45. This was a celebrity crook mocking the cops and fact-checking articles in terms of his age and his whereabouts. But to Keith Murdoch, it wouldn't have mattered a jot so long as you could only read Squizzy Taylor's letter in the Herald. Murdoch's paper wasn't just reporting the news, it was making itself part of the news. And the same was true when a story broke that day, 23rd of March, 1922, that would take precedence even over Squizzy Taylor and Colin Ross. Two boy bushrangers were shooting it out with police out in Gippsland. Bushrangers, in this day and age, as they say, hold the front page. To make sure his paper got the scoop, Murdoch authorised his special reporter to get out there pronto. So, the next morning, this journalist went up, up and away in a Larkin Sopwith biplane piloted by Captain George Matthews, a noted Great War aviator and recent competitor in the England to Australia aerial race. This daring flying man and the intrepid reporter standing side by side in front of the flying machine made for a dashing page one photo in the Herald. The caption read, This is probably the first occasion on which an assignment has been covered in this way in Australia. The paper was again making itself part of the story. Their flight east through heavy rain and cloud was pretty dicey. As the plane flew over Warrigal, townsfolk thought they were witnessing the boy bushrangers becoming aerial escape artists and tearing off into the wild grey yonder. One of these concerned citizens phoned the Herald to report this startling news. Of course, that gave the paper a few more paragraphs. It told readers, quote, a considerable amount of amusement was caused when it was learned that the aeroplane contained no one more dangerous than the special representative of the Herald. Captain Matthews got the plane down safely at Neerham South. The first thing the agitated townsfolk wanted to know was, could the pilot search for the bushrangers from the air? Captain Matthews had to say no. The forest was just too thick and the weather too bad for him to see much of anything. The Herald's reporter encountered a heavily armed population in a state of high agitation. These bush-ranging lads weren't larking about. They were dangerous. The way things were going, they'd have to be shot on sight. Their names? Robert Banks, 18. He was a reformatory school kid from out of town. Rob Banks. It was almost like he'd been named to be bad. The other fugitive was just 15. Henry Maple local boy, in a bit of trouble with the law these past few years. Henry Maple. The name had a bushranger ring to it, like Ned Kelly or Harry Power, even though his people were well respected in the district. According to records at Ancestry.com.au, Henry's father, Joseph Maple, was born in Richmond in 1878. But by 1903, he was living in Neerham South. Joseph was a champion woodchopper and active in local affairs. In 1904, he married a woman named Ethel Orty, and the following year they had a daughter. On the 10th of July 1906, Ethel gave birth to their first son, and they named him Henry Alexander Maple. The couple were to have five more surviving children. The family lived on a 50-acre dairy farm a couple of miles west of Neerham Junction. Their place was close to that beautiful glen of ancient trees and spectacular ferns. 
Glen Nayuk was literally put on the map in June of 1914. That was when Australia's new Governor-General, Ronald Munro Ferguson, and his wife, Lady Helen Munro Ferguson, spent two days in the Neeram district. The Viceregal Party was treated like the royalty they represented. All the townspeople turned out, and it was a carnival atmosphere. Flags lined the streets of Neeram South and Neeram Junction, and the few stores were decorated with colourful bunting. This was the biggest thing that had ever happened in these parts. The local paper, the Gippsland Independent, said it was something that the people would never forget. The Governor-General had come to officiate at a ceremony to welcome the first nurse to the district. This was an initiative of the Bush Nursing Association. Finally, there'd be a woman on hand to help deliver babies, see to children's health and give first aid to men injured in farming and sporting accidents. The Weisregal couple enjoyed a splendid lunch in the presence of 40 guests that was hosted by Councillor John Wollstonecroft, son of a pioneering family and head honcho in these parts. On the morning of their departure, the Governor-General and his lady went to Neerham South State School to watch the children perform. Henry Maple and his brothers and sisters would have been among these proud little tackers doing drill and singing the national anthem. And because it was Arbor Day, His Excellency planted a tree in the grounds. Which was kind of amusing because the next stop was to watch a woodcutting demonstration. And the appropriately named Joseph Maple was just the man to show the Governor General and his lady how a simple axe could bring down one of those huge forest trees. Well, at least the ones that weren't now protected. The highlight of the Viceregal tour was their visit to that spectacular glen near the Maple Place. John Wollstonecroft and his fellow councillors had recently secured this as a permanent nature reserve. As the viceregal couple entered the glen, a bugler began Scottish music from deep inside the forest. This was an enchanting moment for His Excellency, who'd been born in Fife. Lady Munro Ferguson was given the honour of naming this place, and she called it Glen Nayuk. It was a nice combination. Glen, of course, being the Scottish word for narrow valley, and Nayuk being derived from the Aboriginal word for cockatoo. In the years ahead, as motor cars became more common and the railway reached Neerham Junction, Glen Nayuk became a tourist attraction, described as one of the most beautiful places in Victoria. While it was wild, it was also accessible by well-graded paths, but step off them and you disappear into the greenery. As far as the record allows, Henry Maple was your average country kid. One of his teachers would say he was, quote, generous, open-hearted, unselfish and willing. Though this admiring educator did say Henry was fond of a prank, though no more so than other boys. Henry's father, Joseph, said he did a lot for his eldest son. Quote, I purchased a piano and had him taught music, and he rode to the township for his music lessons on his own pony. While very fond of Henry, Joseph had to admit he was a little bit wayward. Some locals would characterise the kid as being a liar and a thief. Henry left school at the age of 14 and started working. Trouble officially began when he was visiting a house and stole a pair of binoculars and a few shillings. The loot was retrieved quickly. Henry had hidden the field glasses and he still had the money in his pocket when he was nabbed. As such, his father was to claim it had just been a boyish prank. After all, Henry already had £7 in wages owing, so he hadn't really needed the money. But Henry was charged, and in December 1920, he was taken into the care of the Department for Neglected Children. 
he was sent to the Royal Park Depot in Parkville, which functioned as a reception centre and a clearinghouse. Children would stop at the depot for weeks or months before they were committed to reformatories or sent out to live and work with foster families. In early 1921, Henry was boarded out to a Mr Smith at Thorpedale, 40 miles southeast of his family's farm. He worked there for a while, saved his wages and bought a shotgun. But later that year, Henry ran away. Arriving back home, he told his father he'd absconded because Mr Smith had hit him. Mr Smith would later admit that that was true, though he said he'd done it for the boy's own good. But as an absconder, Henry was re-arrested and on the 10th of November sent back to the Royal Park Depot. To other boys in the institution, he was a strange character. Just 15 years old, he already stood 5'10 and weighed 12 stone. Though Henry was strong, he was also slow and clumsy and he had big feet. The other boys nicknamed him Draft Horse. Those in charge of Henry didn't seem to like him any better because he refused to fight. A Royal Park official would say, quote, We all thought Maple was devoid of courage. Though he was probably the biggest boy in the depot, he always seemed to dread putting on the gloves for a friendly spar. Even the smallest of our boys could paste him at will, and he would cover up for the most part of a boxing match. One of these smaller boys would add, Yes, he was a real blob with his fists. Why, I could put him through myself. But it was the gun he was keen on. Gun mad he was. He was always looking forward to the time when he could get away into the bush with a rifle. Henry was supposedly always boasting about what a marksman he was, saying he could knock over a bounding kangaroo at a range of 1,000 yards. But Henry did make one friend at the depot. This was Robert Banks, born in 1903. Unlike Henry, Robert had been in the system almost since birth. At the age of two and a half months, he was placed in a children's home. His father was dead and his mother had deserted him to marry again. Robert was fostered out to a woman at Castle, Maine, but sent back to the state reformatory at 16. He ran away in 1920, was caught and brought back, and then boarded out to work for a farmer at Alberton for four months before being bounced back to the depot. Robert was slight, standing 5'3", and dark-haired with delicate features. Unlike Henry, he was handy with his fists, but he was also slightly hunchbacked and was mocked by the other boys as Humpy. Perhaps it was because they were ostracised that Draft Horse and Humpy became mates and planned for the day when they'd show everyone. On the 29th of January 1922, Henry ran away from the depot and returned to the Maple family farm. He told his father they weren't feeding him properly at the depot. Joseph would say, quote, as soon as he reached home, I communicated with the secretary of the department and asked if Henry could remain home and that I would look after him. Joseph said he was given approval for this and Henry settled down to work on their property. Henry was apparently healthy and content. His father said, thanks to his strength, there was no better worker in the district. Meanwhile, his mother Ethel, who was now ailing, said her boy was a saint. He'd cook and mend when she was too sick to do so. Just before Ethel went to Warrigal Hospital for treatment, her dutiful son promised to plant a beautiful garden for her, so it would be ready for her return. That, at least, was the rosy view that Mr. and Mrs. Maple had of Henry. But at this time, Henry wrote to Robert Banks, who'd been boarded out to work at Powelltown, just 12 miles west of Neerham Junction. 
Henry wrote to say he'd had a fight with his father and he was going to leave home. Did Robert want to come down? Robert did, and he absconded from his employer and walked to the Maple House, arriving around the 16th of March. Robert told Henry's dad that he was just passing through on his way to a job. Four days later, on the night of Monday the 20th of March 1922, Henry and Robert were playing cards with the other Maple children. Joseph called out that it was time to go to bed. He asked Henry if he'd like a cigarette. Henry said, no thanks. Then he changed his mind, took one of his old man's smokes and retired for the night. But Henry hadn't gone to bed. Instead, he said to Robert, quote, If you'll come with me, I'll break into a store up the road. Robert replied, All right. Henry grabbed his shotgun and an iron bar, and they walked to the Bloomfield Cooperative Stores at Neerham Junction. Henry used the crowbar to force open a window. He boosted Robert inside, and then he followed. No one resided in the Bloomfields building, so they had the place to themselves. The boys lit a lantern, and what they saw had to be a little bit like Aladdin's cave. Everything theirs for the taking. Everything that boy bushrangers could possibly want. According to Robert, Henry's most important first prize was a Winchester single-shot rifle he took from the store window. This was a 22 calibre gun. Henry grabbed four boxes of ammunition, 2,000 rounds in all. He loaded the Winchester, and according to Robert, Henry said, If anyone comes in here, I'll blow his brains out. Thankfully, no one came in. The boys helped themselves to boxes of shells for the shotgun, which would now be Robert's weapon. They took boots, socks, shirts, cooking gear, cakes, lollies, German sausages, cigarettes, pipes, and other random items such as nail clippers and silk stockings. At one point during the 45-minute raid, Henry became startled and put the rifle to his shoulder, but there was no one. The boys grabbed three suitcases and filled them up with their booty. All up their haul was worth £100, about $9,000 simply adjusted for inflation. Then they were gone into the night, leaving the lantern burning inside Bloomfields. The next morning, Joseph Maple awoke to find the boys were gone. He didn't give it much thought, assuming Henry was accompanying Robert some of the way to his new workplace. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. While Joseph was getting on looking after his younger children that morning, the Bloomfields manager was reporting the break-in to the local policeman. This was Constable Henry Bartles of Neerham South, six miles down from Neerham Junction. Constable Bartles was 33 years old, married with two young sons, and he'd been a police officer for a decade. He'd worked at numerous country stations and had only recently transferred to Neerham South. What he was confronting at Bloomfields wasn't exactly a Squizzy Taylor-style stick-up. Yet, out here in the sticks, a break-and-enter like this was a pretty major crime. Constable Bartles got assistance from a Constable McCartan, who came up from Warrigal. How they knew who they were looking for wasn't clear. 
Perhaps it was simply the boys' reputations and the fact that they'd both disappeared overnight. Joseph Maple said he was visited by these officers that day. They told him that Henry and Robert had broken into Bloomfields. Joseph would later claim, quote, I told them where I thought the boys would be found and offered to go with them, but they said I better remain home with the other children as their mother was in hospital. Constables Bartles and McCartan spent the day riding the road all the way out to Powtown and back in search of their suspects. They didn't find any trace of the boys. After that, the officers went back to their respective stations. The investigation of the Great Bloomfield's break-in at Neerham Junction was on pause for the moment. Sooner or later, the boys would resurface and then they could be dealt with. In the early hours of Tuesday morning, after the break-in, Henry and Robert stashed their hall in various hiding spots in the bush. Then they slept in ferns near the farmhouse of Stanley Lockett. After their arrest, the boys did some shooting. Henry noted his marksmanship in a pocketbook. As this was the first entry, it seems likely he'd stolen the journal with the intention of keeping a bushranger diary. He wrote, quote, Tuesday, three ring eyes, 20 wrens, one jackass, one rabbit's tail. Thanks to Henry's aim being so true, 25 birds had met their maker. That evening, the boys slept in the bush under a hollow log. On Wednesday, they made a camp in a gully. Though it was wet and cold, they had to feel like this was a grand adventure. But now they decided they needed to retrieve a suitcase they'd planted down behind the Johnston house, about a mile or so from Bloomfield's store. When they got to this gully stash spot, they found that this part of their precious loot had disappeared. Henry was furious, saying, The Johnstons have taken it. I'll shoot someone for this. At daylight the next morning, 17-year-old Bessie Johnston was in the kitchen having breakfast with her mother. The women heard a shot and a thunk against their house. Bessie opened the back door and looked down into the gully. A second later, there was a flash, a gunshot and a bullet hit the kitchen wall right beside her. Bessie threw her hands to her face and staggered back inside as more shots were fired. Bessie slammed the door, her mother asking if she was hit before Mrs Johnston started screaming, murder, murder, as another half dozen bullets peppered their place. Fortunately, Bessie and her mother were both unhurt. After hiding in the front bedroom with the four younger Johnston children, the women finally felt safe enough to emerge and send for the police. By mid-morning, Detective Bell from Sale, Constable Duffy from Warrigal and Constable Bartles from Neerham South were at the Johnston house. All up, they found a dozen bullet holes. Judging from where Bessie said she'd stood, she was lucky not to have been shot in the head. In a gully 50 feet below the back of the house, there was a tree stump, and the police believed this was where the boys had lurked when one or both of them had opened fire. Given Henry Maple's reputation for marksmanship, it wasn't clear if he'd been shooting to kill and missed, or had just been trying to scare the Johnston women. Learning that a boy had discovered their suitcase in the gully the day before, the police correctly presumed that this attack had been in revenge. Henry Maple and Robert Banks had now gone far beyond breaking, entering and stealing. At 11am, the three police and a civilian named Mr O'Connor started a search for Henry and Robert. Their little party was armed, Constable Duffy tasked with carrying their spare ammunition. The four men 
beat the bush, but it was hard going and they found no one and nothing. Then Trouble found Constable Duffy when he disappeared into that wall of green. Exactly how the constable got himself lost and how he so quickly came to be out of earshot wasn't clear. But it was now after 5pm and the men were calling cooies in the hope of finding Constable Duffy before darkness fell. In the wake of Henry's shooting up the Johnston place, the boys had built a rough shelter by placing boughs against a big fallen log. It was pretty rudimentary, but it offered some cover from the rain and a place out of sight where they might sleep a while. The boys were sitting beside their shelter, Henry with a cigarette, when they heard cooies. They reached for their guns. Henry said to Robert, There's someone out there. I'll shoot the first person who comes near the place. Constable Henry Bartle stepped up onto a fallen log, hoping its height might give him a glimpse of the missing Constable Duffy. Instead, just feet away, on the other side of the log, beside some boughs, he saw the boys, both sitting with guns on their laps. Henry had a cigarette between his lips. Constable Bartles called out, Hands up! as he reached for his revolver. Henry shouldered his 22 rifle. He fired and hit the policeman in the head. As Constable Bartles fell, he fired his revolver. His bullet snapped the cigarette from Henry's lips. The boy bushranger had plenty of bravado, but he must have been stunned to have such a close call. Constable Bartles was just as stunned. Stunned to be alive. He landed in the undergrowth with a bullet graze along one side of his head. His floppy felt hat bearing an entrance and exit hole. Henry Maple and Henry Bartles were both alive. Two miracles in the space of two seconds. But it's not clear that the boy knew he hadn't killed the policeman. All he'd seen was the man go down. The civilian Mr. O'Connor went to help Constable Bartles. Detective Bell covered the bushranger's escape route to ensure that they didn't get away. Detective Bell would say that after about half an hour, once Constable Bartles was sufficiently recovered from his shock, they surrounded the boy's camp. They yelled for them to come out. Then, when there was no response, they advanced on the position. Detective Bell was to later tell the Herald, quote, To our great surprise, there was no sign of our quarry. The two lads, who are remarkable bushmen, had succeeded in creeping away through the scrub unobserved while we were collecting our forces. What Detective Bell's description didn't directly reveal was that before they advanced, the police and the civilian had shot the hell out of where they believed the boys were hiding. This was evident from his description of what they found at the camp. Quote, They left a copper kettle through which three of our bullets had passed and a miscellaneous collection of goods. Other newspaper reports would claim there had been an onslaught. The age would characterise it this way. Quote, Detective Bell and Constable Bartles emptied their revolvers at the offenders, but apparently none of the shots took effect as the youths escaped. The son up in Sydney was to say there'd been a firefight. Quote, a duel of bullets followed, both the police and the youths being protected by the bush. No one was hit by the exchange of shots. But something else Detective Bell was to tell the Herald was chilling. Quote, had we known how desperate the outlaws were, Constable Bartles would have taken advantage of the easy opportunity he had of putting a bullet into them both. From now on, it seemed, the police policy would be to shoot on sight and shoot to kill. 
Once it was clear the boys had gotten away, Detective Bell, Constable Bartles and Mr O'Connor continued looking for Constable Duffy. They found a hut and called out for the boys to surrender. Then they opened fire before rushing the building. It was empty, but it contained 250 rounds of 22 caliber ammunition. The bushrangers had been there, and they were still out there somewhere. But it was now dark, and there was nothing more the police could do. That night, Thursday the 23rd of March, at 10 o'clock, Constable McCartan was dispatched from Warrigal in a motor car. He took with him four service rifles and more ammunition, field glasses and general equipment. The police were tooling up for a bigger search to resume at daylight. Word of all of this had reached Melbourne that day. Too late, though, for any of the papers. The Argus and the Age would have basic reports compiled from telephone interviews the following morning. But Keith Murdoch's The Herald was an afternoon paper. It could give readers more if they could get a man on the spot. Yet waiting for a train or driving would take far too long. So Murdoch authorised a plane. It was an expense, but one that would pay for itself if only for the page one photo opportunity it presented. So the Herald's reporter posed in front of the Larkin Sopwith biplane with Captain George Matthews before takeoff. Later that day, on the front page, the Herald had the latest under the headline Hide and Seek with the Police. Armed use evade pursuers in Neerham Scrub. Further shots exchanged today. The Herald's report, which included a headline calling them Neerham Bushrangers, was an absolute farrago. The paper reckoned £1,000 worth of goods had been stolen from Bloomfields, which was 10 times the actual value. The Herald had an interview with Mrs Johnston in which she claimed Henry Maple had shot at her house at Christmas time as well. If she actually said this, it had been a neat trick because Henry had been at the Royal Park Depot all through December. Then there was the Herald's claim, quote, In the scrub today, further shots were fired on either side. That wasn't true, but it did make for a more exciting breaking news headline. The truth was that no one had seen the boys since Constable Bartle's lucky escape. The good news the Herald could report, which was true, was that Constable Duffy had turned up safe. After getting lost, he'd made his way to Stanley Lockett's farmhouse and spent the night there. Overnight, Constable McCartan's car had arrived with gear for the police and half a dozen volunteers. Out they went, into the intense cold and the blinding rain. They stayed all day in the undergrowth. When they got back to town, they were all exhausted and soaked through. Around sunset, a council of war was held by lamplight. The chain of command had been established. Superintendent McCormack of Sale was directing operations, reporting to Mr Nicholson, Victoria's acting chief commissioner of police. As the fugitives were believed to possibly have entered the Burke district, police from Warburton, Yarra Junction and Lilydale were also searching for them. Senior constables from Melbourne had arrived and two Aboriginal trackers had been sent up from Dandenong. A night search was impossible. The terrain was too difficult and it was too dark and too rainy. But a group would stake out the Maple House. It made sense that Henry might try to get there. Another watch would be kept on a farm where it was thought the boys might try to dig up potatoes. Neerham Junction was under siege. Police and volunteers were pouring in and being handed guns. The district had never known such excitement. It made the Governor-General's visit pale in comparison. 
If Henry Maple had wanted notoriety, then he had it in spades on Saturday the 25th of March. As searches gathered at 5am in heavy rain outside Bloomfield's store at Neerham Junction, newsboys in Melbourne were fanning out with the latest from Gippsland. The Age headlined its update on the trail of the boy bushrangers. But this wasn't just a Melbourne story, it was national. The Sun in Sydney went with, Everyone armed, search for young bushrangers. Over in Perth, the Mirror's lead page one story that day was headlined, Bushrangers in Victoria, armed youths take to bush after shooting up a farm and firing point-blank at police. Mounted men from five towns pursue Embryo Kellys. Embryo Kellys. Of course, by 1922, the Ned Kelly legend had long had a hold over many Australians. The world's first feature film, The Story of the Kelly Gang, had graced silver screens in 1906, the same year that Henry Maple was born. The film had been so successful that during Henry's childhood, there were some 100 bushranger movies. Governments worried about the corrupting effect they had on children and progressively banned them from 1911. Yet in 1920, the second feature film about the Kellys escaped this prohibition because it contained a warning against criminality. Henry Maple, 14 years old, would very likely have seen this film, which was titled The Kelly Gang. In mid-July 1920, the film showed at Warrigal, and the West Gippsland Gazette reported it was playing to good houses. That anti-crime warning didn't really seem to have the desired effect. The paper said, quote, the stirring episodes in the career of the outlaw and his companions were shown in some thrilling pictures which created great enthusiasm. Were Henry Maple and Robert Banks trying to emulate the Kelly gang? The Mirror over in Perth certainly cast them in this light. Quote, the wild times of the stirring days of the 80s when the Kelly gang was at large and holding all Victoria breathless with their exploits have been vividly recalled in Gippsland during the past week. Other newspapers would follow suit, particularly as it emerged that Henry Maple was the instigator and leader of this modern bushranging outbreak, with one headline soon to proclaim him, Young Ned Kelly. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia podcast, Young Ned Kelly, the boy bushranger of 1922. The second and final instalment will be released very soon. If you're a fan of Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts because this helps other people find the show. And if you'd like to help me make Forgotten Australia, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. And this link's also in your show notes. Supporters get ad-free early episodes, bonus shows, and a whole lot more goodies. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.